0: Good evening, and it's good to be with you tonight. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. We'll read from verse 1 to the end of the chapter. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and proclaimed through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink, but let men and beasts be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray once more. Our Father in heaven, I pray that tonight, as we open the Word in Jonah chapter three, that you will teach us something of yourself, that we may go from this place tonight, having uh, heard your Word, and that we may go forward and walk before those uh, in wisdom before those who are without. And we ask, O oh Lord, that we what we have not, you may give us; that what we are not, you may make us; and that on all these ways, that your Word may. Make us more like Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. I want you to imagine somebody. Somebody perhaps that you know. Know well even. But somebody that perhaps you don't like too well. For a number of reasons you may not like this person. I don't know, again, who it might be. It's it's with you and... You may have any number of reasons for things that they've said, from things that they've done, either to you or to other people that you may love and hold dearly. And one of the things that's true with someone like that, if you're like any one of us with a sinful heart, you may no doubt wish that at some point, somehow, for whatever they did, to you or to somebody else, you may wish for them to get what's coming to them. Now, in our text today, we need to realize at some level that we cannot have such a frame of mind for anybody because at the end of the day, one of the greatest things that we as Christians can learn to do is to indeed love our enemies, love them enough to uh, share them the truth, to extend them the grace and the mercy that we have ourselves received from the Lord of glory through his son, Jesus Christ. And this text actually addresses those things in a number of different ways, as we've been walking through the entirety of the book of Jonah so far, just two chapters so far, we will know that one of the, we've started to pick up more, one of the underlying themes of the book is the mercy of God for pagan idolatrous worshipers that are in Assyria, and even at some level, even for a disobedient prophet for a pagan nation of Israel in Jonah. The book is rich with uh, kind of consistent themes of the mercy of God. And in this passage today, it's no less the same from sending the fish to swallow Jonah whole to preserve his life. Even in judgment, he's preserving his life and bringing him and giving him a second chance. Now, as we interact with people on a daily basis, there are going to be people that we have great difficulties with and that we are going to need To show mercy, and that's why when we approach this text, we need to consider how it teaches us that we need to show mercy to the merciless like our God of mercy. We need to show mercy to the merciless like our God of mercy, and we're going to see how we can do that through the giving, how the Lord shows mercy in his word in verses 1 to 4. And then second, how we will see the Lord's mercy in granting repentance in verses 5 to 10. So we'll see the Lord's mercy in the word and we'll see the Lord's mercy in repentance. Now, let's look and see in verses one to four how we can know the Lord's mercy in his word. Now, note here in verse one where it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now, in our first installment, we noted how when the word of the Lord came to a prophet of the Lord, he had was duty-bound, oath-bound as it were, to bring the word to whomever he was told to bring it. At least in his case, throughout much of Israel's history, the prophets were to bring it to the courts of Israel, to the cities and highways of Israel. And yet in this case, he's sent to do it in Assyria. And even as he ran in complete disobedience and disregard to God's word and commission on his life, you can imagine the great trepidation and fear as he swallowed up in the fish and he says, you know, is this it? And Of course, by God's mercy and grace, that did not happen. He was spit up and given yet a second chance. He's given a second chance because even though he is a fearful, weak, disobedient, even prophet, he sent all the more to finish the work, to fulfill the work that the Lord has called for him to do. And in giving him this second opportunity, we hear these words from our Lord where he says, go back to Nineveh, call out against it, that message I will tell you. Now, if you remember from chapter one, he says, go and proclaim to Nineveh the message for their wickedness has come up before me. But here it's a slightly different tone. He's saying, yes, go, arise, get up, and go to Nineveh, proclaim the repentance, proclaim the wrath that is certainly to come to them in the word. But the noticeable difference here in verse 2 is that it's a message that he says, I will tell you. He doesn't just leave them to say, preach to them for their wickedness has come up against me. It's a message that I will tell you. Now, here's the significance. Why is that significant? Here it is. One of the reasons that we address as to likely the reason that Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord to begin with was the fear of going to a pagan nation, a great and mighty nation that is the Assyrians. We noted their brutality, how they uh, completely annihilated cities, drugged kings and prophets and, and nobles into captivity mutilating them, even dragging them behind their chariots as they're leading them from their nations even into the capital cities of Nineveh. They were not the nicest people in the world, to say the least. And to go to not just the Assyrian Empire, but to the heart of the city of empire, really out of the comfort zone for any one of God's prophets, no doubt would have caused a great deal of fear and trepidation for the prophet. His fear motivated him and led him into disobedience. And so when we see that, see what, what the Lord is saying here, not just giving him a word to proclaim, but he's giving him a word of, then he says, I will tell you. He's giving you know, Jonah this sort of assurance at which level he can say, not only are you just going to go into the, that great city to Nineveh, but I will be with you. I will be with you, my presence. You can be assured of one thing, that the words that I give are going to come from me. And that in spite of what the people may do to you, in spite of what, of course, we know throughout the rest of the chapter what they won't do in terms of uh, harming Jonah. He's going to be led into a state in which the Lord is going to tell him, I will give you the words to say, I will be with you, and I will uphold you in the midst of this great task of preaching repentance to this great city, this great number of pagans. And as an aside, it should tell us, it should remind us at some level that everything that you and I do is by the word and power of our of our mighty God. Leave preaching out of it from, for a second. You know, preaching or teaching or anything like that, of course, comes from the power of God. But... Even from raising your families, even to controlling your finances or anything like that. We do at some level need the wisdom and power of God to do those things, even the mundane things. And if we are in humble reliance upon the Lord, even in the mundane things, how much more will when greater things come, greater difficulties come, and indeed they will come, will we not also be able to rely more on the Lord's power and even dealing with those things? And so Jonah is able to go then and do that. He actually goes and preaches the word. It says that Jonah actually arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. On the one hand, he didn't do it. Now again, he is doing it. He's heard the word of the Lord and is going accordingly. And Jonah presents for us in verse 3 to 4 something of the the, the greatness, the, the 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 design of the city as it were. It says Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days' journey in breadth. And then he was going into the city a day's journey as he began to call out. Now this isn't something to say for Jemet at least as how long it took him to get to Assyria or to Nineveh. What it's talking about is is really how long it would take for him to go to one end of the city to the other, north, south, east, and west. It's an exceedingly great city to to think, to take three days to walk from one end to the other. He's got a lot of work to do. He's got a lot of work to do as far as bringing the word goes is concerned. And it's even in his first day that he, when he gets to Nineveh that he actually begins his work. He, brings his, he begins his preaching, he calls out to them and says, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, indeed, Jonah does fulfill the Lord's word in reminding them of the wrath that is certainly going to come to them. There is a note in history, in ancient Mediterranean history, that eventually destruction would come. To the Assyrian Empire. Not long after. Maybe some two or three hundred years. After the downfall. Of the northern tribe of Israel. Babylon arose. And uh, excavated the land of Assyria. As it were. Mowing them down. And taking everybody else with them. So the Lord's promise and threat. Did eventually come. But in hearing the word. As we'll see throughout the rest of the text. They do respond appropriately. They do respond, having heard the wrath of God due to them for their sin. They do repent as well. But note something of the language here that Jonah is presenting here. Even while he is finally, as it were, bringing repentance, bringing the message to the people of Assyria, the language that he's leaving them here with is this. Nineveh shall be overthrown. He's leaving them, as it were, with a stark reality that there is really no hope. Your wickedness is so great that the the destruction upon your kingdom is going to be so vast and so mighty that there's really no hope for you. You might as well close up shop and go home now. So even as he's bringing the word, he's still giving us something of almost a pleasure in preaching damnation. He's giving something of a... Pleasure, as far as not bringing the mercy that he was supposed to bring, bringing that uh, that message of mercy and repentance to the people, he was not doing that. And he says, "You know, you're going to be gone anyway. In 40 days, you'll be done." It almost is as if it pleases Jonah to see the city of Nineveh in Assyria go up in flames. Now, I have to be fair to Jonah here at some level. You have to think of what Assyria has already done and what they are already known for. And even though the and even though the text doesn't say at this point what, at least in the book of Jonah, that Jonah knows what's going to come to Israel, you still have to imagine that as a prophet, he probably knows what the great wickedness of The northern tribe of Israel, contra to the Assyrian Empire, that more than likely the Assyrian Empire is going to be the vessel at which the Lord uses to punish the northern tribe, to lead them into exile in the great cities of Nineveh. But it doesn't say that explicitly, but it does serve the point that I'm trying to make, at least that... Jonah was pleased to preach no hope, to be merciless to the merciless, to return mercy uh, the lack of mercy with a lack of mercy. Now again, we know that it is fair at one level for Jonah not to do this because he he knows the the the. The, the work of oppression that has been going on among the Assyrian people, not just with respect to the people within their own borders, we'll get to that, but especially to the nation of Israel and the nation surrounding them. He's got hard feelings for people that rightly, perhaps, don't deserve mercy. He himself is willing and ready to withhold mercy all the same. Now, I was actually asking this question to a um, pastor friend of mine in Virginia as we were discussing this text. And with Richard over there, I would like to ask you the question, how would you feel if you had a pastor who did not like to preach mercy? You wouldn't have a job very long. Not merely because that repentance, preaching repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is not necessary. And knowing that outside of Christ there is no mercy, there is no hope. Because the wrath and curse due to us for sin is so great and so vast that we are the Assyrians at some level. Outside of Christ we are the Assyrians. And yet the God of mercy, the God of grace extends mercy to us in such a way that it leaves us without any question that we must be ready to extend the same mercy to those who we consider merciless. We must be quicker to forgive, quicker to extend love and mercy, even to those who wrong us and despitefully uses us. It's, the, it's one of the main things that Jesus spends his time with in the Sermon on the Mount. Do good to those to persecute you and revile you and speak all kinds of evil against you showing the showing love to your enemies is indeed the hardest thing and seemingly the most impossible thing for a Christian to do and yet we are modeled for that even where our lord Jesus is sent to the cross himself to die for people who showed him no mercy He models for us what it is to do the same. Now, it's easier said than done, as I said, because we can think back to the person that I asked you to imagine earlier ago. And you can say, well, Dale, you just don't understand what they've done to me. You don't understand what they've said to me. You don't understand all the evil things that they've said, not just to me, but to others and to anybody else that is close and dear to me. You just don't know. No, I don't. I'm fine to say, I don't know. But the Lord knows. And if the Lord is still willing and able to extend mercy even to you, even to the Assyrians, then the very least that we can do is learn ourselves what it is to extend mercy to those who have been merciless to us. And it takes spending time with one another, sharpening one another, encouraging one another to do and say the hard things. But to do so with the note of grace and mercy that it takes to win back our brothers, win back our friends. It's the hardest thing in the world to love our enemies. It's a hard thing to do to pray for them. And yet at the same time, it is one thing that we know that we are told to do, we must do. And our Lord even gives us that example. By being merciful to the merciless, and sending a prophet, a disobedient prophet, to perhaps the most ferocious empire of his day, and they repent. Now he gives the now the expectations have been turned. Instead of uh, reviling Jonah, instead of putting him up on the stake as it were, we see under our second heading that the Lord's seeing of the Lord's mercy and repentance, that that's exactly what the people do. In verse 5 to 10, we see the Lord's mercy in repentance. Now, what does it say in verse 5? No doubt, probably contrary to Jonah's wildest expectations, the people of Nineveh believed God. Amazing. Amazing. Amazing because, again, as we said, that they, they, they are known for nothing else in their great wickedness and their pagan worship. They believed God and notice their response. They believed his word. They believed that what Jonah said with the utmost strength and veracity that destruction will come to you. They repent. They repent are modeling that sort of repentance by calling for a fast, by putting on sackcloth and ashes from the greatest of them to the least. And know what it says about the king to highlight how it reaches even to the greatest of the greats of them. It says it reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. And then by verse 7 and 8, or verse 7 and 8, yes, he makes a public decree on behalf of himself and the nobles to say, all the kingdom, all the nation will do the same. That's essentially what he's getting at. Now, I don't have time to necessarily go in and talk about what it what it would look like to, to fast, put on sackcloth, and sit in ashes. But the reality is, is that it's a it's a showing of a great cry of desperation for the people, knowing what they've heard, that they have decided that there really is no hope for us here there's no hope at all for us and so that maybe by these tangible acts maybe even for ourselves the Lord will show mercy and we can even see that in verse 9 where the king who I'm not we, it's not necessarily important who he is because the text doesn't give us that in, in idea it says who knows God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. They are left, again, as I said, without any real inkling of hope that God will hear them and will hear their cries and will see their repentance and will see anything like that and will have mercy because Jonah, by all accounts, had not left them with such hope. But at least at one level in this text... By calling the whole nation to repent, calling the whole nation to turn from their violence, the whole nation to turn from their evil ways, he's at least doing the appropriate thing, the right thing, and getting everybody <laughs> involved on it. Now, again, as an aside, there is this highlights one of the reasons why it's good for us to do corporate repentance, corporate confession of sin. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we do it in the Lord's Day services every day, because even... As believers, we sin each and every day. We fall short. Even on this very day, we fall short of the glory of God. And even for a nation as wicked as this, it is appropriate for them to do the same. It's always appropriate for us to do it. But... At least here, this is not necessarily, while this is not the people of God, they are invoking the reality that they must do this one thing, and that is turn from their evil ways from the violence that is in their hands. Now, something should be said about the nature of the violence they were guilty of, because it didn't necessarily just affect the nations that were around them. We've talked a little bit about uh, what they would do to uh, conquered kingdoms around them, the sort of economic, uh, social, religious even oppression and injustices that they would invoke on them. And they would even do that to their own people. It created something, to to use modern talk, to sort of maybe bring us into it, uh, class conflict. You might call it that, because one of the thing, because part of the violence that was going on there was, in even in the Assyrian Empire, was not merely just mistreating one another, being mean to each other. It went to the nth degree. They were robbing one another blind. The the rich were stomping on the poor, and it began to create in the. At least in the minds of the poor, the, the, the least of them, as the text says in verse 5, to begin to retaliate, to resent, and to go ahead and break the law because who cares? They're doing the same to us. Creating a culture of, of fear, an economic injustice, of religious poverty and the like. These people were horribly wicked one to another. And it was the kind of wickedness that no doubt would have invoked the wrath of God upon any nation, let alone uh, the Assyrian Empire. And they repent. Now, again, Jonah says in verse 9 that there's no inkling that they are left with much because they at least realize that you know, God may turn and relent from his fierce anger. So that we not per- may not perish. But he's not sure of that. He doesn't know. It's the nature of the question. Now I don't know how many of you are using the ESV or, or anything like that. I mean I'm using the ESV only for this reason. Because I think it does get us to something of the, the nature of what's going on here with the Hebrew. Because it actually opens with the question, who knows? We don't know. We've had some sense that our wickedness is very great, but we don't know what the Lord God will do. But nevertheless, they repent. They turn from their evil ways, they turn from their wickedness, and that they themselves will not perish, as we see in verse 10. But there are also indications in this text that it's not really a lasting repentance. Now, it's not a lasting repentance because not only do what we know from history that Babylon would end up uh, crushing the Assyrians themselves. That was also divine punishment. But there's no true sense in this text themselves that it was a true, genuine repentance either. Look at what we see in verses 8 and 9. Let them call out mightily to God. Who knows? God may turn and relent. When God saw what they did, how they turned, God relented of their of the disaster. Even as far as this reported speech goes, even into the direct speech, notice how they are not calling attention to the Lord's covenant name. If you remember in. Jonah chapter 1. For example when the sailors. Turned and repented. And committed themselves to the Lord. would follow somewhat similar practices. of Like with the. Assyrians uh, are doing. Of putting on sackcloth and ashes. Whereas the sailors themselves. Would vow vows. And make sacrifices to the Lord. They were calling upon. The covenant name of the Lord. They were calling upon the. Uh, Lord of Israel, the God of Israel, as he is in himself, and they were committing themselves to follow him. But you don't get that here. There's a reason why they're doing that, because there's no sense at which... Or relent But sure enough he's not Our God And so there's no lasting repentance There's no sense of which they're Committing themselves to him But at the very least The Lord is satisfied With what they do Because it says in verse 10 When God saw what they did How they turned from their evil way God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, just a brief word as to how it's describing what God did, when he saw what they did, how they turned. It says God relented. It's a similar idea to uh, ideas of how we repent or turn away from things, but it's it's not really the same because at one level... When you're talking about how God is turning from his own plans or his own desires, he's not so much in and of himself changing his plans. He's an unchanging God. He's not going to uh, say, well, my plans are thwarted. I, I guess I'll toss those out. Again, we know in history that Assyria does bear his punishment. But at least for this time, the Lord withholds his judgment and withholds his wrath. Upon Assyria, because, in spite of the imperfect nature of their repentance, by not calling upon the Lord at, by his name as he is in himself, as he's been proclaimed to them, no doubt, the Lord is still satisfied with what they did enough that to see how they turned from their evil disaster or their evil ways, and how he would relent from their disasters and It is difficult to extend mercy to love our enemies. And even with an imperfect repentance, even with a repentance that isn't lasting, even to a nation as great as Assyria who this repentance didn't last, this change didn't stay forever, yet he at least for a time was willing to have mercy upon this people, this pagan people and was willing to to relent from his plans for a time and go forward. Now it should highlight to us something else. That how the Lord does not withhold mercy from the merciless. We've talked about it briefly already. But friends, I really want to emphasize how when we examine our own hearts, when we look to ourselves, when we look to the people that are perhaps in this room or perhaps in our homes or perhaps our neighbors or anything like that, if we are so willing to look at one another or those around us and just say, who cares? I want them to get punished. If that is the underlying if that is ever an underlying part in our hearts, that is something that we need to step back from and say, Lord, can help me to consider how much for myself you have shown mercy to me. How much mercy you have given to me. And how hard my own heart is, even now. Because at various stages in our lives, our hearts do become hard to one another, even to dear Christians. To where even the slightest mistake, the slightest lack of, they didn't do this just right. They didn't do this the way I wanted them to do it. Therefore, they should be punished. Therefore, they should realize that maybe they're, they shouldn't be doing what they're doing. That's the sort of thing that creeps in. And creates in us a hard heart where we are less than likely and less than willing to extend mercy to those around us, even in the church walls. And it's something that we need to constantly consider as we examine our relationships and plead for the Lord's grace and mercy, saying, Lord, help me to be more merciful to my brothers and sisters today. Help me be more gracious to them. Because the reality is people will never live up to our own standards, and they certainly won't live up to God's standards. But if God Almighty is willing to extend mercy to us, even whilst we don't repent perfectly, follow Him perfectly, then how much more should we do the same? And he shows that even for us. Even that when he says in Romans 9, and grow in mercy the same and that we may look more and more like Christ each and every day. Help us, Lord, in in that way. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.